what a beautiful uh, Christmas presentation. I think I've ever seen anything quite like it. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. You know, the, we were singing a lot of songs. The most famous oratorio, you know, a lot of different songs that were put together at Christmas is called what? Does anybody know? Handel's Messiah. So we hear Messiah, and, and George Handel named it Messiah, and it's kind of a good name because Christmas is about Messiah. And especially for the Jewish people, they're looking forward and they're saying, or, you know, at the time in the past, they're looking back and they're looking for the time when Messiah is going to come. Still looking today for Messiah to come. Now, Messiah is based on the word anointed one. So an anointed one would be a prophet, a priest, and a king. That's what they did. If you were going to be appointed to a position of power, to a position of authority, there were three main offices. Now, if you are going to be anointed as a prophet, that's one thing. But if you were to be anointed as a priest, you would be the son of a priest. And if you were to be the anointed as a king, you'd be the son of a king. It's kind of mysterious. How could he be all three? So they started to call him the anointed one, and that became his name. In Hebrew, anointed one is Messiah. And so he comes up with this idea, Messiah, and he writes this great oratorio. And right in the middle of it, he sings what? Wonderful counselor, remember? Almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the everlasting father. And Danica, quit laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> the prince of peace, right? So he emphasizes the prince of peace, right? And, and we sing that at Christmas time, don't we? At least we hear it on our CDs. You ever wonder why? And what is that all about? Where is that from? Was that just Handel making that up? Or is there something in the Bible that relates to that? Actually, he sings it almost word for word from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And we're going to conclude today and this Sunday before Christmas, we're going to conclude our Christmas prophecy series. And we're going to look at what Isaiah has to say. Isaiah was perhaps the most famous, the greatest of all the written prophets. He wrote more than the others and was the most eloquent. And today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And he's going to emphasize the same thing, the Prince of Peace, that we have a promised Prince of Peace. And we're going to talk about the promised Prince of Peace today. And let's keep one thing in mind as we do, that while Hebrew, the word is Messiah, in the Greek, the word is Christos, which we translate Christ. It means the same thing, and that's how we get the word Christmas. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about Christmas but we're going to talk about prophecies that were made about Christmas by Isaiah seven, over 700 years before they took place. Once again, seven centuries before this happened, he wrote it. Isn't that wild? It just blows my mind how you know, they could do that with such pinpoint accuracy. So we'll talk about the promised Prince of Peace. And the first thing we'll do is we'll talk about the promised peace for all the nations that he's going to bring. So I'm going to read to you the first five verses, and we'll look at that and we'll consider, all right? So why don't you follow along with me? We're at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. 
For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across the shoulders, their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Pretty eloquent guy, huh? Powerful, powerful words as he kind of sets the, the stage for what we're going to talk about today. The first thing he says is nevertheless. When he says nevertheless, it's like, what in the world is he talking about? He's talking about what he was talking about before. So what was he talking about before? Well, if we go to a couple paragraphs before, chapter 8, verses 18 to the end of that, I think it's verse 22, what he basically is saying is that you're in a tough time. This is a very, very difficult time, a time of darkness, a time of gloom. We're, we're in a barbaric time. Verse 18 indicates that it was a time that they had turned from God and they had been looking at the occult and other religious practices. Very dark time in the history of Israel. In fact, we know that historically it was during the time that the Assyrians had attacked them. And they would actually conquer most of Israel. Nine tribes of Israel are missing to this day because they would conquer them and deport them. And the Assyrians were brutal warriors among the worst in history. They would take hooks and they'd put hooks in people's noses and pull them around. Facial jewelry was not popular during that time. <laughs> and so they were really brutal people, and they just beat everybody up. And so the people, when he's writing this, was during the time this was beginning to happen. And parts of Israel were already falling, and other parts were afraid. And so Isaiah is saying, there's doom and gloom in the land. And he's pro prophesying there will be doom and gloom in the land in the future. Little would they know that there would be a huge empire that would oppress them for a long time. What empire was it? Roman Empire would rise during Jesus' time. So he says there's going to be doom and gloom. It's going to be a bad, awful, yucky time, and something's going to happen out of this. And then he says there are two people that are going to be, be uh, two tribes that are going to be humbled, Zebulun and Naphtali, two small tribes in the northwest during part of um, Israel. You know, who cares? You know, you never even hear about these guys. I mean, they're just sort of like, what do they have to do with Christmas or what do they have to do with anything? They're insignificant tribes, partly because they're, they're insignificant because they were the first to fall. In 734, 732 B.C., Tiglath-Pileser III, what a name. You know, you think a guy like that would be angry. But, but blame your parents. Don't take it out on others. So he goes out and he just starts, you know, beating everybody up and he attacks them and they're the first to places to actually be attacked and to fall in the Bible. They go down, and they're humbled, and they're humiliated before everybody else. Isn't it just like God that he takes those that have fallen first, those who have been humbled the most, and from them he brings victory and triumph? From them he brings out of the darkness and gloom a light? He... He starts with the lowest. Isn't that interesting how God does that? The first will be last, the last will be first. And so he does that with them. Now, what's really important is, where was Jesus born? We talked about this last week. Where was he born? Bethlehem, right? And that wasn't a trick question. That was a pretty easy one. But here's where it gets a little bit trickier. Where did Jesus, where was he raised? <coughs> That's right. In Nazareth, right? He was actually raised in the town of Nazareth. And that was tricky because people knew he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but they didn't understand how he could come from this place. What does that have to do with anything? Nobody knows anything about Nazareth. Later, Isaiah will say in Isaiah chapter 52 through 53 that Jesus 
will come from a place, he will come from a place that's despicable. You know, it will be lowly and nothing. Well, guess where Naz- Nazareth was all of that? And guess where Nazareth was located? In Zebulun. See, this tricked everybody. They didn't think he would come from there. He's supposed to come from Bethlehem. He comes from both places. Prophecy is never fully understood until prophecy is fulfilled. All of a sudden we see born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and out of this lowly, despicable place, this place that becomes known as Galilee of the Gentiles, they turned the whole area into a district called Galilee. And for years to come, it would be known even today as Galilee. Gentiles meant non-Jew. I mean, for the Jewish people, that's kind of low. You know, you're a non-Jew. And what had happened is they, they would come in and they deported these people, and then other people would come in and they would intermarry, so much so that by the time of Jesus, they had their own accent and their skin coloring was of darker complexion. They weren't purebred, see. They were the lowly Galilee of the Gentiles. One thing they knew for sure is Messiah wasn't going to come from there. And yet Jesus becomes the man from Galilee. 700 years before this prophecy was made, but people didn't get it until it happened. And, and it says that he, all these different places, that's where he spends. Most of his ministry is in Galilee. And then it talks about what he does. He says these people are in this great area of darkness. You know how when things are, you know, when things are going bad, it seems kind of dark? He talks about the valley of the shadow of death like David, the land of darkness. Have you ever been in a time like that? Have you ever felt like there was a dark time in your life or a dark time in the nation where things, even now, has been kind of a dark time? We've been going through some tough times even as a nation, and we've had wars and everything else. It is scary, and it seems kind of more dark. And these guys, it was really dark, and it seemed like there was no hope. And out of this, he says there's going to come a light. There's going to come a light. Can you imagine a light, just one, one light, one candle? There's going to come a candle, a little light that will begin, and that will be the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come to this land. And then it says, you've enlarged the nation. And he begins to talk about the nation enlarging and about it expanding and about it coming back together again. Have you kids ever done a candlelight service? Anybody ever done candlelight service? You take one candle, right? And then what happens? You begin to spread it out to the whole room and all of a sudden it all fills up, right? That's what's happening here. It starts with one candle and pretty soon all of Zebulun and all of Naphtali and all of Galilee is filled with light. And then it begins to expand throughout the whole nation. And all of a sudden, Isaiah gets so excited, moved by the Spirit, that he moves beyond Christmas. He kind of misses it. But he doesn't really, because remember what we've been talking about. Christmas Day, when Jesus is born, is the inauguration or the beginning of the messianic age or the age of judgment that we're in. Christmas doesn't end until Jesus comes back again. That's the end of Christmas. Do you realize that? It starts today, but it ends. It starts with Jesus' birth, but it ends with Jesus coming again. Jesus comes first as, as friend and Savior. He comes again as judge and as king. He's given us thousands of years in history and all this information from the Bible to know that he is who he is, and he's coming again. That's scary, but it's also exciting because when he comes again, he's going to bring everything together. It's going to be a time of real celebration. It's going to be an incredible time when Jesus returns again. And so that's what he's talking about here is is he's coming back. He's bringing this new light, and he kind of jumps ahead. Have you ever heard of, um, you know, the song Joy to the World? 
Okay, so Isaac Watts is the guy who wrote that as a poem. He actually wrote that based on Psalm 98, the end of Psalm 98. You know what that's about? It's not about Christmas. It's about the second coming, the parousia, they call it in Greek, closest translation, the second coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus then. So, but, but it became a Christmas carol. We don't know how. But when we sing it, and we'll sing it later today, listen to the words. It's celebrating what happens at the end when Jesus comes again. If Jesus hadn't come, we couldn't have this victory and we wouldn't be able to celebrate it. So the two intertwine with each other. You can't have one without the other. Jesus is coming for the purpose of coming back to set the stage. And so some writers will even intentionally in Christmas songs connect both together and intertwine them. Really powerful to think about what he's going to do when he comes back again. Um, And then he says that people are going to rejoice. They're going to get excited. They're going to rejoice over the harvest. How many farmers do we have here? How many farmers, any ranchers? We've got one. Leo, you're not the only one. Carolyn, you can raise your hand. Stands out here. But there's a, there's a, that, you know what? What would you feel like if you had your best harvest ever? I mean, can you even imagine? You had a harvest so, so great, you never had to work the rest of your life. <laughs> you know? Oh, my goodness. It was the best. It was the harvest of all harvests. You talk about a celebration. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, if you're a farmer... Can you imagine what it would be like to have the greatest of all harvest? If you're a soldier, can you imagine? We've got some soldiers here. Mark, we've got a soldier up in the front. We've got Jim in the back and some other guys around here and people that are old veterans. Can you imagine what it's like you know, when you're discharged, when you've done it, you've got the job done, or when you win a great battle, or when you win a war, and it's over, and there's peace in the land? That's what it's going to be like. And he gives an example, an old example, from, James, from Judges chapter 6 through 8. Judges 6 through 8, he talks about Gideon. Remember Gideon? Gideon had only 300 guys, and he beat the Midianites. It was that imper- I always wonder if that rhyming was that intentional, Gideon and Midian. That kind of weird, but, but he beats, so we can remember. So he beats the Midianites with nobody. And that's what they're saying again. One guy, one guy is going to eventually, little by little by little, conquer everyone. Just like Gideon started off a little bit, the Messiah will start off a little, and he will conquer everybody to the degree that there will be no more wars ever, ever again. A time to rejoice. So I was talking to my professors, my favorite professor in seminary. Somehow I I connected with his wife. She's widowed now. She's 83, and I call her up periodically, and she prays for me, and she's just a dear old lady. She's 83 now. She's in a wheelchair. She's had um, like a polio. She says it's not polio, but it's similar. So she has trouble walking. But she says she gets a lot of attention. Do you kids go up to people that are in wheelchairs and be nice to them, wave to them, smile to them? She says a lot of kids come up to her and and wave to her and, and say, hi, can I do anything for you? She says, people are so nice to me. She says, I say to them, blessings on you, blessings on you. She's a sweet little lady. She says, Ron, she says, I want to tell you, I almost died a few months ago. But I'm glad I didn't because I want to live a little longer. And this is why. She says, I want to live long enough to see one more great awakening in my life. And I believe it's a dark time, but I believe God's about to do something very big. And I don't want to miss it before I go home. I don't want to miss it. And I thought about that. And you think about history. It's interesting. It's almost like every 400 years, there's this really great, incredible movement of God. And then it dies down. And then 400 years, there's another one. And in between the 400 years, there's little awakenings sometimes or revivals where uh, little towns or communities where many people will come to know the Lord and it will change the whole fabric of the community. 
And they're almost like examples of what's going to happen, kind of whetting our appetites, what's going to happen, what's going to happen until the Lord finally does come back. I would like to live through one of those. I would like to have one of those experiences, wouldn't you? Uh, and I think that's the kind of thing we need to pray for and believe God in. What an incredible thing to see this little town of Oakdale, to see many, many people come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, to see their lives transformed, to see problems with drug addictions and alcoholism drop dramatically in this town, to see people that are homeless with homes and places, where, and, and places to eat, to, to see people working together with the churches in the community and, and different people working to help take care of charitable people and people in need and, and seeing a unity and a warmth and a closeness that is incredible. Would you like to see that? I mean, who wouldn't? And God does that as we believe in him and as we pray. We pray that for the whole nation and pray that because one day it's going to happen. Pray one day that God will come again so we can be praying in the short run. God, pray that you would just do some incredible things in our church, in our community, in our county, in our state, in our nation, in our world, but also to pray, Lord Jesus, even though it may be scary when it happens, pray that you'll come again because that will be the most wonderful time of all. The questions that are naturally going to be asked is, who is this light? Jesus, of course, will call himself the light. In John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. But at this point, the people that are reading what Isaiah is writing is saying, what's his credentials? All you've told us is he's a light. Okay, you've got our attention. You've got to be talking about Messiah. He's going to come and save us, right? Who is this dude? What, what right does he have to do it? Why would we want him to save us? Who is he? And so he gives his credentials of peace. In verse 6, which is the most important verse, he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. First of all, he says he's a child. He's going to be born like a human being. But then he says something very mysterious that when we connect the dots and we look fast forward in history, we understand it. He's going to be born a child, a son of man, but he's going to be sent from who? He's going to be sent from God. He will be the son of God. He will be 100% man, but he will be 100% God. Born a child, but sent from God unbelievable theology that just kind of sneaks its way in there that doesn't make sense until it's fulfilled with Jesus. It says the government will rest on his shoulders. In other words, poetically, he will be the king. In the next verse, they'll talk about him being the king and him being a descendant from David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there was a prophecy to David made even, oh man, this was, must have been close to a thousand years earlier before Jesus was born, saying to David that you will always have somebody sitting on the throne. There will always be a king of Israel descended directly from your line. Now, that became difficult to understand when in 586, Babylon defeated Israel and there was no more king. But you know what? They kept in the temple, they kept a record of everybody's genealogy. And that's why when Mitch spoke just a few weeks back, and he, remember he spoke about Matthew chapter 1, they had the list... They wouldn't write it down unless it was indisputable. They had the, at that point, the temple was still in existence. It has since burned down, but they had the records to show that Jesus was the rightful king of Israel. Well, that's pretty, 
pretty powerful stuff. Uh, once again, here he is, the king of Israel. And so it all ties in. So he is the rightful king. And then he has throne names. Have you ever known that a king or queen has throne names? Kind of like, this is how good my king is. This is how good my queen is. And you just list all their things. A lot of times very flattering things. Have you ever heard of the throne names of Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom? It takes about a half hour. It seems like it. they go on and on and on, talking about all the places she rules, talking about all these wonderful things about her, on and on and on and on and on and on and on, just kind of saying, our queen's better than yours, but you can't talk as long as us. Well, with God, there's only four things that are said, or possibly five, depending on how you read it, but there, there's not that many of them. But none of it's flattery. All of it's true, and it says all that needs to be said. It's very interesting. These words are found nowhere else in Scripture. They're very, very different in the New Testament. The, the descriptions are very different than we're accustomed to in the Old Testament, and so they, they really stand out. Some think there are five of them. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father. Handel thought so, but he was wrong. I don't know if he was wrong. Some people say he was wrong. Some people agree with him. I tend to believe that there really were just four of them. You know, kind of like an adjective and noun. You know, the whole idea of what kind of counselor was he? He was a wonderful counselor. What kind of God was he? He was a mighty God. So if you look at it that way, there are four of them. The first two talk about his deity. And the next two talk about how he would exercise his deity. So the first thing is he says is he's a wonderful counselor. Wonderful. What does he mean by wonderful? The word for wonderful is a superlative. It means... This is too big a word to explain. It just, I can't say it. You know, Samson asked the, the angel of God in uh, Judges chapter 13, verse 18, said, what's your name? And you know what he said? Same Hebrew word, wonderful. I can't tell you. It's, there, there's no way that I could describe it to you. It's beyond description. God is a counselor. Jesus is supposed to be a counselor that is beyond description. In fact, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 says that he treasures all the wisdom and knowledge in the world in himself. He knows all there is to know. Now, a counselor is not just a guy sitting across from another person, you know, or a woman sitting apart, across from another person, talking to them, handing them, you know, Kleenexes and that kind of stuff and talking. And How are you today? And, you know, it's not that kind of counseling necessarily, but it's more a counselor of warfare here. It's more the picture of General Eisenhower during World War II deciding when he will launch the largest amphibious assault in world history on Normandy. And knowing through history that he nearly had a nervous breakdown making that decision. Rarely, if ever, has a man in history had so much pressure on him. And yet they succeeded. And it becomes a picture, once again, of God's victory. In a sense, D-Day, for us as Christians, will be the second coming of Christ. And Jesus, though, will not have a nervous breakdown because he knows precisely when it will happen and how it will happen. He's got it all figured out. He's got it all figured out. He has your life all figured out too. Do you ever think about that? Christmas time, you might be stressed. I don't know what you're stressed about. Could be work, could be school, could be relationships, couldn't be getting together with family. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's that time of year. But God has wisdom for us. In fact, in Judges chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, Judges 1, 5 through 7, we're promised wisdom. If, if we want wisdom, God will provide wisdom for us if only we believe in Him. So we need to go to Him and pray. I know in my life, 
Even, even in the starting of this church, I mean, I think back on it, it, was like, it wasn't like a big decision. It was like one decision at a time. There was a decision that I had to make. So I prayed about it. I made sure that it lined up with the Bible. I asked friends that I really respected to, to talk to me and pray with me over it. And then I just kind of did what was obvious. You know, I think we stress too much. You just kind of say, okay, well, I guess this is what I do this time. Well, I guess this is what I do this time. You know, God will stop me. God stop me if I'm doing the wrong thing. And one step leads to another, and, and things just happen. You know, we don't have to stress out over it. God already knows the beginning from the end. Just pray about it, but doesn't disagree with the Bible. If we're not getting discordant you know, statement, if other people aren't getting upset with us, say, no, that's the wrong thing, you pray about it, you, you just do it. And God will give you the wisdom and show you what to do in all of life. He offers wisdom for us because he knows exactly what to do. In each case, he is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. Mighty, of course, he's strong. But, uh, and, and more powerful than we can even imagine. I mean, way more powerful than anything ever. But he's also God. I remember the first time I read this, somebody had told me that nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God. Has anybody ever told you that? Somebody told me that, and I started finding all these places after that where it says that he's God. And this is one of them. It says the Messiah is going to be God. I don't know how you could miss it. I mean, that one of his throne names is Mighty God. He's the supreme being of the universe. And that's how powerful he is. In the first couple verses of the Gospel of John, his closest friend, he says that Jesus was creating the world with God, that he has existed forever. This little baby in a manger has always existed as far as we can know or imagine or understand forever. He created the world that he came to live in. Does that boggle your mind? And that's what this prophecy was saying 700 years before he was born, that he was mighty God. Now, how does that affect our lives? God gives you the strength to do what he calls you to do. God will never call you to do something that he won't enable you to do it. If you feel like there's somebody you need to talk to maybe about, Chris, about Jesus this Christmas in the family, if you feel there's a big decision that you have to make about school or work or relationship, trust him with it. Because oftentimes the problem is not that we're seeking wisdom to decide what to do, but we're seeking the courage to do it, right? We know what we're supposed to do. We just don't want to. I've been there many times. And, and so God gives us the power and the strength to do what he would call us to do. It says he's an everlasting father. Well, he lasts forever, right? But isn't it weird that they call Jesus father here? Isn't he supposed to be the son? Did they make a mistake? It kind of bothers people sometimes. Jesus, the everlasting father. But understand, this is poetry. This isn't theology. Remember, Jesus later in, in Matthew chapter 23 talks about Jerusalem, and he says that, um, he, he says, I wish I were, you were chicks and I was the hen and I could gather you under me. Well, is Jesus then saying that he is a hen? You know, that's kind of a weird picture. You know, the hen of God. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah, we got we to be careful here how, how far we go with this. The point is, is that he is a protector and provider like a father is a protector and provider. We're going through, you know, we're in a dark time. There are demons around, there are violence, there's problems, there's hardships, there's wars. Things are, things are tough, but God is good, 
and he's in control. And if you're his child in relationship with him, he'll get you through it. I think life is sort of like this. You start off, for example, with kids, and, and your kid is learning how to walk. And when they fall down, do you say, and they start crying, you say, oh, no, let's stop this. Oh, I can't. Let's not do this. Can you understand, honey, the trauma this will bring on this child? He's crying. Can't you see? That's will make him walk. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, or, or next thing you know, they're riding their bike and they fall down. And they start crying. Okay, well, that's okay. We'll return it. We can take the, the bike back. You know, we'll get you something else for Christmas. You know? You know what I'm saying? Or, or, or they, 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 time to drive. I don't want to drive. I can't pass the test. It's just too frightening. Well, then don't worry, honey. We, we, well, mom and dad will just drive you everywhere you need to go the rest of your life. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Does that make sense? You know, no, right? Wouldn't that be crazy? That's what I'm saying. And so it's like, why would we do that? You know, because, but each of those experiences are traumatic in their own way. But if you don't go through them, you won't ever be able to walk. I mean, you know, the, you go over to a person's house, and what's your son doing rolling on the ground with the ball? Well, you know, it was hard for him to walk, you know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you aren't getting very far. So... So the point is, what is the point? <laughs> you know, you kind, of, kind of cut a little far off track here. Um, <clears throat> we go through hard times in life, and our God lets us go through our trials. God takes us through our trials because he knows we can make it through them, and he knows that when we go through them, they will bring victory for us, closeness in our relationship with him, and be an inspiration to the rest of the world. I don't want to be the guy sitting, pushing the remote and watching about other people on the screen. I want to be one of the guys on the screen. I want to be a person who may not get recognition in this world, but leaves his mark on this world. And you can't do that if you don't go through trials. And so we all will go through trials in our lives, and God is with us, holding our hands and helping us through those times. And he will whisk us to himself and give us a big bear hug when it's all over and give us presents and rewards, and we'll, he'll write in his book... You know how, kid, how parents write in their books, the baby book? He'll write in his book what we did in our lives as he helped us. And so those trials, hard as they may seem at the time, are all part of God working through an eternity. When you're in heaven looking back, they'll seem like very little as you see how God, our everlasting Father, has cared for us. Prince of Peace, and there's the highlight. I suppose what we want most is peace, right? When you're done shopping, you sit down, plop yourself down on a couch and have some cocoa? Or, you know, you took your last exam, you finished finals, you fall asleep on your desk and the prof has to wake you up and, you know, it's time to go home. You know, I'm done. No more practice this week. Seal the big deal at work. But you can only relax in that peace for a short time and then you're off to the next task. Imagine if that peace stayed with you forever. We can't have that yet on earth, but we can have a taste of it as we draw closer in our relationship with God. I don't know about you. I mean, I notice when my stomach tightens up, I've learned that that's usually when I'm not trusting in the Lord like I should. And then when I relax, I'm at peace with him. I'm talking to him. I'm interacting with him. We can have peace as often as we communicate with him. Now, all this leads us to the eternal reign of peace in the last verse, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace... There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness 
from that time on and forever, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. His government will increase, and it will have no end. His government peace will have no end. How big do you think it will get? How big does no end mean it will get? How much of the planet do you think he'll cover? Anybody? All of it, right? He's going to cover the whole thing. There won't be an inch left that isn't covered with his authority and with his peace. Think about it this way. Today, if you took all the people who claim to be Christians in the world and put them in one nation, you'd have one of the most populous and powerful nations in the world. Christianity is spreading across the globe. And though it's sputtering these days in North America, it is absolutely exploding in Africa, in Asia, and in Latin America. They are seeing growth like they've never seen before in history, exponential growth. We're getting nearer and nearer and nearer and nearer, and one day it will all be taken over. It will all be the light of the Lord. And it says that he's on David's throne. We've already talked about that. And it says he'll establish with justice and righteousness. Do you ever, has anybody ever felt like somebody's treated you unjustly? <laughs> Have you ever noticed on television that there's some really bad things going on in the world? There won't be any more. Everything will be set straight. The perfect illustration of this, your homework assignment for today, if you will, is, is read Isaiah chapter 11, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Because in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, he describes what it will look like. And one of the things he says is this is where he says that the lion will now lie down with the lamb. Lions and lambs will play together. Babies will play with vipers or snakes. There will be no danger from the animal kingdom or from each other anymore. There will be complete and total peace and God will reign. And that is why we're excited about Christmas. We're not excited about a baby coming into the world. We're excited about who that baby is and what he will accomplish. And he will accomplish peace for the entire world. Now, you can almost imagine what Mary said. Remember Mary when the angel told her, you're going to have a baby, you're going to have Messiah, you know? And she says, oh, great, I can't wait. This is what I've been praying for all my life. You know, it was more of a surprise, right? He's like, what? What do you mean? How is that going to happen? She says, she says, she says well, how will, this, how will this take place? How will this happen? And you can almost imagine, again, Isaiah's readers saying, how in the world is this going to happen? And Isaiah gives them an answer very similar to what Mary's answer was given. He says, the zeal of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which would be translated Yahweh, the self-existent one, the God of the universe who was, is, and will always be, the Almighty One, the, the One of hosts, the Lord of hosts, He will accomplish this. How will this happen? God will make it happen. He's going to do it. And he's going to do it because of his zeal, because of his passion, because of his passionate love for you. Have you ever thought about how much God loves you? God loves you more than you love yourself. He loves you with an incredible love, so much that he told people 700 years in advance, he's coming, don't miss it. And he's given us thousands of years of information to let us know this is what happened, this is what's going to happen, don't miss it. To tell us how we can be in a personal relationship with him. 
And he's made that personal relationship with him possible by sending his own son to die for you on a cross. And then rising again to conquer sin and death once and for all. Remarkable stuff. It just keeps going on. And so when we look at what God has done for us and we think about what's going to happen, it, it, it almost cries out for us to say, well, how do we, what do we do? How do we respond? How can we somehow commemorate what he's done and prepare for what he's going to do? Jesus has helped us with that because he's given us an ordinance, and it's called the Lord's Supper. And we're going to conclude today, this Sunday before Christmas, by taking together the Lord's Supper and preparing our hearts in a very special way for what Christmas is really all about. Now, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, if you're not yet in a relationship with Jesus, if you have not yet bowed your knee to King Messiah, then I encourage you to do so, and I encourage you to come and talk to us about that. Uh, But if you're not yet in a relationship with him, this is really only for those that know Jesus personally. Also, I'd say this, that there are a lot of children here today, and generally children are not yet ready to take the Lord's Supper. I'll leave that up to you as parents to discern what you should do, but this is generally um, not for for the children unless they really are are prepared, if they really totally understand everything that this is about. But for for us, it's a time for the rest of us to um, still be together as a family and to prepare our hearts to be unified. That's what God wants more than anything else is that We've, um, that our hearts are pure before him, that we don't have bad relationships with anybody else. If we do, that we get them right or that we confess them before we begin. And if we can't, that we just wait till later. Um, it also means that we recognize the things we've talked about today, that Jesus died on the cross for us, that we could live forever, that now we can be forgiven and we can be in personal relationship with him forever. And that because of that, one day we'll be in a perfect kingdom where there will be peace forevermore. We all long for that, even those that don't know God and don't believe in God, because in our hearts, I believe, God has placed that desire. And so let's prepare our hearts for that now, and I'm just going to give you an opportunity to pray to yourself quietly, to confess any known sins, to make sure that your heart is right with God, and then I'll close this after a little bit, and we'll go ahead and partake together. And so um, could we all just, just bow in prayer, uh, silent prayer? Father, we pray that you would help our hearts to be clean before you. Uh, pray that there are no broken relationships, and if there are, that they could be mended even as we go to the table. Um, Lord, I pray that we keep our minds on you, and I just thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to earth, that you humbled yourself, that the thought of God becoming a baby um, is, uh, if, if, if even the cross had never taken place, that event in and of itself is so absolutely incredible. That um, and so humbling, we can't imagine that you would do that for us. But then that you would go even beyond that and give your life for us. Please forgive us for taking it too flippantly. And I pray as we partake now in the Lord's Supper that we would, that you'd prepare our hearts and that our minds would be on you where they should be and that we would recognize uh, more fully what Christmas is all about. Amen.